This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to New Books in Asian American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Yin Shin. Today on our podcast, we have Meredith Oda speaking about her book, The Gateway to the Pacific, Japanese Americans and the Remaking of San Francisco, published in 2019 by the University of Chicago Press. Meredith Oda is Associate Professor of History at the University of Nevada, Reno, where her research and teaching focus on 20th century U.S. history, Asian American history, urban history, and the history of the U.S. and the world, especially U.S.-Japanese relations. In our conversation, Meredith and I discuss her path in Asian American history, from the coast to the Midwest and back to the coast, about her impressions on multinational research and the growing literature on the Pacific world, as well as her formulation of the concept of trans-Pacific urbanism. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Asian American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ian Shin, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we're talking to Meredith Oda about her book, The Gateway to the Pacific, Japanese Americans and the Remaking of San Francisco. Meredith is Associate Professor of History at the University of Nevada, Reno. Meredith, welcome to the show. Hi, Ian. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm so glad you could join us. Um, I wonder, Meredith, if we could start by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, um, I am I'm fourth generation Japanese American. I was born in Philadelphia. Um, and I think that's kind of where I got my interest in history. My parents would take me to uh, Gettysburg or um, what's it, Williamsburg um, on little family vacations and just, you know, the field trips there, we would go to the Liberty Bell or Independence Hall or whatnot. So um, it was just kind of around me there, I think, in Philadelphia. And somehow it just kind of worked for me. And I have always loved history. And I really attribute it to my sort of parents, family road trips and um, to the location I was in. And about in high school, though, I moved to California. And uh, then I could kind of get to see a very different kind of history, I guess, but also just a very different kind of, um, I don't know, environment in a lot of ways where I saw very few uh, Asian Americans in Philadelphia, suddenly, you know, California, <laughs> Bay Area, they were everywhere. So we lived in the Bay Area, and then I went to Cal for, to Berkeley for my undergraduate. Um, while there, I worked with some really fabulous professors. Uh, then I was, that was also where I first kind of got into Asian American history. I was always interested in history. I 
thought colonial history was super interesting, the U.S. West. But then for the first time, I kind of saw Asian American history and myself in history. And I then I really kind of realized that this is what, something I would want to do. You know, I worked with Elaine Kim, who's in literature, Jerry Takahashi, who I think is actually a sociologist, but I took a Japanese American history class with him. Um, and then I did a senior thesis with Waldo Martin, where I kind of pulled things together, did a lot of you know, research for the first time and really kind of realized this is what I wanted to do. And then for my graduate work, I went to the University of Chicago. And I kind of went there intentionally. I mean, obviously I went there unintentionally. I, it's a fabulous history department, but I also knew doing Asian American history, I kind of wanted to do it off of the West Coast where it was just more established. Um, and I felt like in going to the Midwest, in going to a, you know, university that didn't really, it didn't have an Asian American program. It didn't have like the, certainly the long history with ethnic studies that Berkeley did that, um, you know, I'd have to sort of articulate my ideas a little differently um, to a broader audience, maybe make claims more broadly or to different audiences, broader audiences that I might have on the West Coast. And I thought that might help my historical practice. So Chicago was great for that, and it was also fabulous because uh, I got to work with May Nye, who you also know, um, who was just instrumental. I, I mean, obviously, that's what they do, but she was fabulous in kind of helping me to rethink and refine and think about Asian American history, and then, of course, my own project in new ways. Um, as somebody who also, actually, I guess, did her work in Asian American history, but off of the West Coast in terms of her studies and in terms of her own professional life. And Thomas Holt helped me think about race and Kathy Conson in terms of the urban environment in particular. So I was lucky to work with some very fabulous people. So I think that's my sort of professional and personal background. That's great. And and what's interesting to me is that, you know, you, you and this is going to get us a little bit into the question of how you came to the project mm-hmm. um, that, uh, that we're talking about today. Um, you, you spoke a little bit about wanting to seek out um, a, a sort of out of California context for doing this kind of historical work, but then the the subject of, of the book, obviously yeah. being centered <laughs> on, on San Francisco, sort of brings you back to to the West Coast, mm-hmm. right? And and I know uh, you know that there's a, a growing body of scholarship um, on on Asian American history in the Midwest, uh, books about Chinese Chicago mm-hmm. and St. Louis. Um, how did you come to settle on San Francisco? Aside from obviously having grown up in the Bay Area. How did you come to settle on San Francisco as sort of the central site of yeah. your study versus it's- also L.A. And, and some of the other cities you reference? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I guess the West Coast and Asian American history, it's like the mob, the mafia. You, you just they're always going to drag you back in. Um, that's not true, obviously, because of the scholarship that you cite. But at any rate. Um, I actually started to, I got into this project because I had lived in San Francisco, or I lived actually always on the East Bay. Um, But I worked in San Francisco for a couple of years after I finished my undergraduate. I had done work in Asian American studies as an undergraduate. um, And because of that, right, they have a very strong tradition at Cal and at San Francisco State of community work. And I, you know, many Asian American studies departments do of community work, of the the discipline being as much about sort of getting into the communities, working with communities as scholarship. And so I took that fairly seriously. It was a big part of the program when I was an undergraduate. So I worked in Japantown at the National Japanese American Historical Society, um, which is a small but great organization. 
um, for a couple of years as I guess I had, you know, as these small nonprofits do have a number of titles. I think I was a assistant curator maybe for a while, but at any rate, it was a very small place. I did a number of things as everybody in that organization did, but it's located in Japantown, um, right in the heart, really, um, on Post Street, which is the main commercial artery of Japantown, J-Town as it is today, and has been actually for um, over a century now. Um, and I, so the office was there. So I was in Japantown every day, um, you know, every weekday. And if you've been there, you'll know that it's primarily now a very modern looking, it's anchored by this very modern looking uh, Japanese mall, sort of themed as a Japanese mall with Japanese food and Japanese gifts. There's the Kinu Kinio Japanese bookstore, um, some cultural programming. And the way it looks, just the way it looks in terms of um, this one very large, three block long kind of modernist mall, interior inside mall, and then a smaller pedestrian mall across the street is very just evocative of, you know, a particular kind of style of the mid-century or mid to somewhat later mid-century Um and it's all Japanese themed too. And but I knew right from my Asian American studies classes that this was also an ethnic ghetto with all the connotations that that word implies: segregated, poor, um, largely marginalized in politics and the city's mainstream economy. Um, and so I wondered, right, how we got from this enclave to this, this modernist mall. So that was part of the project, just being there, sort of seeing it around me and just wondering how it got to be the way that it looks today. Um, and then when I got to grad school, I was able to kind of put, um, I guess, I don't know, more sort of in-depth thinking behind it. And I, when I was in grad school, I was really fascinated by the urban literature that I was encountering through Kathy Conson um, and uh, James Grossman and others that I worked with there. And that literature was just fascinating, like Arnold Hirsch's book, The Making of Second Ghetto, or um, Thomas DeGruy. And, uh, well, Robert Self kind of came out, American Babylon kind of came out as I, as I was working on this project. But um, all this urban literature that was just fascinating to me in terms of how urban environments change and kind of along with them and in this kind of mutual process, so does racial environments are also changing. And so I was just fascinated by this literature. It was incredibly rich and I kind of immersed myself in it, but I also had to wonder what it would look like if we took it out of the Midwest, which is where a lot of that literature is located, the Rust Belt, um, primarily in the Midwest, sometimes in the Northeast or in the Sun Belt South. And if we took it out of those contexts in which the racial environment there, the racial terrain is very particular and put it into a place like San Francisco um, or San Francisco, Japantown, as it was, um, where again, the racial terrain is extremely difficult, extremely different, um, multiracial in a way that you don't see in at least those kind of earlier 90s aughts, um, urban literature. So it kind of has two, I guess, origin stories. One, just kind of looking at the place around me and trying to figure out why it looks the way that it did. And then this sort of more scholarly trajectory of trying to find a place in, in the literature where I could 
tell the kind of story I wanted to. Yeah, and that brings us perfectly then to sort of the major, I think, kind of analytical concept that you foreground, at least in, in the introduction, which sort of marries together your analysis of the built environment and your analysis of the Pacific world to, to propose this idea of Pacific urbanism or Pacific urbanity. So I wonder if we can start there and have you talk a little bit about how you how you think about this idea of Pacific urbanism. What is it? Um, and, and then, you know, as we talk about the chapters, we'll start to flesh out how it how it comes to life in the history of Japantown. But what is Pacific urbanism um, and, and, and uh, how do you think sort of this plays into some of the literatures that you hope to make an intervention in? Mm-hmm. So actually, and I have to give credit where credit is due, I had a fabulous editor at the University of Chicago Press, Becky Nicolaitis. And um, I mean, you know, her own work is is wonderful and it was important to my own, but she was one of the, she's one of the series editors and she actually is the one who proposed that, that concept or at least that term, right, of trans-Pacific urbanism um, to me as a way in, you know, the early stages of this project is I was sort of grappling with how, how to exactly to articulate um, what was at the time I was calling a kind of ideology, but um, and is to a certain extent, but that also maybe didn't quite capture the, uh, I guess, ur- urbanism of, of this with the specific, con- you know, sort of conflation of urban built environments and populations and cultural change altogether. So it was actually she who had suggested this this concept, and I immediately saw the value in it and sort of took it and ran with it. And so to me, it becomes a kind of um, building off of, you know, the concept of urbanism, which sociologists, historians have been developing, you know, for over 100 years at this point, of urbanism as a kind of way of life, um, as a way of describing cities and thinking about them as distinct, specific locations or sites or places, I guess, um, that are distinct, of course, from rural areas, but are also characteristic of a particular city. So that um, something like uh, a city can be understood as obviously distinct from more rural areas, from smaller towns, and, you know, all the sort of politics and um, social worlds that that implies, but also um, that gives any particular city a kind of distinction. San Francisco, we have a number of things come to mind uh, when we think of San Francisco that are different from, say, L.A. or Chicago or New York, right? And so each have its own particular urbanism. And I also like the term, too, because it has a kind of play in it if you think about transpacific urbanity, which urbanity, of course, is, again, a kind of just another way of thinking about an urbanism. But it's also, you know, if we think about its other usage of being a kind of sophistication, a kind of cosmopolitanism, if you're urbane, um, you have a certain kind of presence. And that, too, I think, was an important part of the trans-Pacific urbanism that San Francisco was developing in this in this post-war period of a kind of cosmopolitan that was distinctly related to its relationship to the Pacific world. Um, particularly to Japan, but also to the fact that it was trying at least, you know, these city boosters, these city leaders, and also everyday people are thinking about their city uh, in terms of its relationship to um, all other, you know, a whole bunch of other places around the Pacific worlds. 
like um, Hawaii or like uh, Japan, of course, China or Hong Kong, mainland China, um, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and so forth. Um, and of course, the way in which it highlights and underscores certain parts of the Pacific, like those countries I just mentioned, and also kind of ignores vast swaths of what is in fact an entirely enormous place, um, like a lot of these other Polynesian islands that just sort of disappear from the American imagination and from the San Franciscan imagination as they start to think about themselves and sort of map out, I guess, start to think about themselves in a kind of mapping of the specific world. Um, and so in doing, think about the places they want to um, have a relationship with, a particular kind of relationship with, and those that aren't as kind of useful, I guess, for their their goals of boosterism, of, um, I don't know, you know, urban self-promotion, and also just, you know, um, opportunity of perhaps personal or community opportunity of neighborhood um, revitalization and so forth. Um, certain places kind of pop out and then other places kind of disappear into the background. So it's very much this kind of way of thinking about a city as an entity to the extent that it can be thought of one. Of course, there's all sorts of competing ideas going on here, um, but also as a kind of civic identity, I guess, and a kind of set of strategies and goals. Right. Right. I love the sort of marriage of, of ideology and way of life and also material you know, life so that it, it's, as you said, it's kind of all encompassing. Um, I'd, I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about sort of the, the emergence of the specific world literature you, mm-hmm. you sort of noted in, in the introduction, you know, and I think one of the things that you've said, which uh, I think the book actually goes a long ways towards addressing is that, you know, one of the other ways um, in which sort of certain parts of the Pacific world appear, mm-hmm. but also disappear, um, depending on, you know, people's sort of usefulness um, for, for those parts of the Pacific world, is that oftentimes the scholarship kind of, in pursuing a trans-Pacific approach, ignores the basin, right? Or, mm-hmm. or there's mm-hmm. a kind of basin-centric approach uh, that that um, will kind of foreground the islands uh, and, and Pacific Islander life um, and, and sort of uh, marginalize uh, the 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 kind of Pacific Rim countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, one of the things I love most about the book is that you actually draw those two together in a way through the figure, and we'll talk about him in a bit, uh, the figure of Masayuki Tokioka, mm. uh, who is the developer behind um, the, the sort of uh, mall that you were referencing earlier as part of the impetus of the project. Um, because, you know, sitting in, in the middle of the basin in Hawaii, he's ap- able to actually sort of, uh, draw together the the rim part with the basin part mm. um, in your writing of Pacific world history. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your impression of how this particular body of literature is coming together, what you see as some of the opportunities, you know, sort of how you're inter- intervening in, in this particular literature, which I think a lot of folks who may be listening to this podcast are, are very interested in because that is one of the kind of future directions uh, and emphases um, that Asian American history and Asian American studies, I think, is is moving towards. Yeah. And um, I mean, it's, it's been really fat. I mean, okay, this is a little embarrassing. I mean, and this speaks to the the length of time that I was working on this book. It started as my dissertation, obviously. So I really, and it actually began as a graduate paper in 2000, um, ugh, two or three. So it's, it's, it's been a long time in the works. Um, 
I mean, obviously setting it aside at different times, but nonetheless, I've been working on it for a very long time. So in that time, it's one of the wonderful things that I guess that measured pace, I guess, to put it generously of my work has one of the benefits has been that I was able, I've been able to um, see this kind of Pacific world, Pacific world's literature develop kind of as I was writing it. And as, as I was thinking about how to position or, you know, what is the best framework for thinking about, you know, what started out as a micro history of essentially three blocks, right, in the middle of San Francisco. So, um, yeah, so when I first started, when I first came to this project, it was a lot that that literature wasn't really, um, it was still kind of nascent, right? So we had, and it was focused particularly on migration. So Asian American history is really at I think the center, the the origin of this history and a lot of, of, of Pacific history in a lot of ways. Um, so books like Madeline Shu's work or uh, Achiro Azuma's work, their first books um, charted a kind of migratory Pacific world, right, in which people came from, um, in this case, more the rim and moved to the United States. But they very much thought about it in terms of continuing relationships with nations of origin. Um, with back and forth movements, not just kind of unidirectional migrations in ways that, oh, Andrew, Mc, um, Andrew McCowan work is another another example of this, in which it was very much kind of part of my, migratory networks, I guess, that were conducive to thinking about the ocean as not a barrier, not as this blank um, slate, but as, as a... Um, as a mechanism, I guess, of connection as much. So I kind of think about those works of Asian American history as, as being kind of at, at, um, at an important starting point for, for this, for this literature. And of course there was, um, work thinking about the Pacific, um, migrations and movements around it before these. But for me, that was really kind of important, obviously to build off of. Um, and then over the course of, uh, the aughts, I guess, and into the teens, um, came other works um, that, like the Great Ocean, Pacific Worlds, um, that uh, Matt Natsuda, Pacific Worlds, or David Igler's Great Ocean. Um, these started to conceptualize, bring kind of migration and movements and also islands. For them, they were particularly focused, I think, on kind of Hawaii, but other islands throughout the Pacific um, colonized or not, and started to really conceptualize an analog, I think, to, you know, the longstanding um, historical theme of Atlantic world or of Atlantic worlds. So um, I've been kind of lucky, I think, in the development of this book to be able to write this book and think about how to understand change in, in this one city, really in this one neighborhood, um, as scholars began to develop an understanding of, again, the Pacific as a place where um, movements, exchanges, ideas developed and kind of migrated around. Um, so, yeah, I think, um, and then, you know, also along the way, a lot of Asian Americanists, too, um, are working into this field, too, and so are able to um, 
kind of help me think about specifically how people move from Asia to the United States, but do so in ways that takes the Pacific Ocean seriously, that takes the um, the migratory path, the mi- movements around the region, you know, seriously in their work. Right. Yeah, and, and I'm I'm thinking especially of, of Elizabeth Sin's yeah. kind of mm-hmm. characterization of the Pacific Ocean as a as a highway yeah, right, that, exactly. that travels in various kinds of circuits. I mean, I, I think one of the things that that historians who are now working um, in this mode um, struggle with, and, and this is partly my my own um, um, struggle as well, is is the ways in which we might incorporate um, different national historiographies and and um, archives in, into this work, right? And I, I wonder if you sort of thought about that in, in, in the course of writing The Gateway to the Pacific, to the extent that, you know, s- some of the actors in your book, like Tokioka, have connections to Japan, you know, um, and, and sort of looking through the, the sort of libraries and archives that, that you used in this project. Um, what are, what are your reflections on sort of, you know, how, how, how else you might, what other sort of sources you might have looked at? Do you think that, you know, sort of looking at Japanese sources would have added um, any any sort of significant pieces of the puzzle? Um, and and how do you think about sort of decentering U.S. archives or English language archives in uh, a Pacific world? sort of historiography that is sort of truly transnational. Yeah, I think, and that's kind of one of the big issues, right? If you are going to take seriously this idea of Pacific worlds and transnational history. Um, And so a lot of the really strong work that comes out um, in transnational history or in U.S. foreign relations even really does do multinational archival work. Um, Cornell Chang's book did this, um, a new book on U.S.-Japanese relations um, by Jennifer Miller does this. So I think, um, yeah, I think it would have been a very different book, I think, if I had been. So the problem is I don't read Japanese. Um, I'm currently slogging through it and trying to learn it for the next book. Um, But, you know, I'm over 40 now and my brain just doesn't absorb information, new information in the way it used to. So, but yeah, I mean, I think so scholars like you who have multiple languages or at least have more than English are at a great advantage because I think this work really would really benefits when you see multi-archival work or research um, in it. So, for example, if I had been able to look at it, I think I would have loved to do the same kind of local history or local research in um, uh, say Osaka, as I did in San Francisco, or at least a little, right? Because that was a sister city that was in a lot of ways home to at least some of the connections. It's a major industrial metropolis in Japan anyway. And, and so it was the site of a lot of the industrial connections, um, corporate connections between San Francisco and Japan. So, I mean, that's kind of an obvious um, gap, or at least it I think that's an obvious place that I would have loved to start. Um, And I did get a little bit of research done. I had a Japanese researcher, um, a Japanese graduate student, do some research for me. But um, obviously, had I started at a different point, I think, right, if I had started this project when I was thinking about about it in the specific frame, um, which hadn't really developed until I was kind of well underway, um, and not as a kind of micro urban history. I probably I would have maybe done some of the research a little bit differently. 
But I sort of came to the Pacific world's idea a little bit later. I mean, as of course the research, like the literature developed, and also as I just kind of came to think about the project differently. So yeah, I mean, when I think about some of the fabulous work being done, that is multilingual. Um, Charlotte Brooks's current book project, um, in terms of um, Chinese uh, sort of multiple migrants, I guess, um, is is one example. Of, of work that could be done that that is being done that is um different and i think a new a strong new direction of asian american history as it starts to you know develop these links with the pacific world literature yeah absolutely well i think with with that 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 brings us nicely as you start to talk about osaka and its connection to to san francisco brings us nicely to the sort of chapters that we might uh, talk about. And I should note for listeners that the book is organized into six chapters, starting with uh, the, ch the first chapter, which talks about Japan and Japanese Americans um, in San Francisco through World War II. And then the successive chapters um, look at uh, sort of uh, more more closer snapshots of the 1950s, the 1960s, and, uh, and, and the into the 1970s. Um, but let's start maybe with, with that first chapter. Um, you started on um, the Pan Pacific uh, 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 International Exposition, or the Panama Pacific International Exposition, um, which I also have written a little bit about in, in my book project mm -hmm. on Chinese mm -hmm. art collecting. Um, and But you take, um, you know, in, in, I focus on the, the PPIE from the perspective of the presentation of China, but as you talk about um, at the PPIE, uh, Japan's uh, um, identity uh, was a very different issue. So let's start there. What what do we what do we need to know about um, Japan and Japanese Americans in San Francisco that sets up the story um, of the remaking of San Francisco later on in the 20th century? Um, I guess the thing to note is that it's so kind of absent, particularly, I mean, in comparison to Chinatown, right? So as early as the 1860s, I have a travel writer talking about visiting San Francisco without seeing Chinatown is like going to Rome without seeing the Pope, right? Like that's, and that's as early as in the 1860s. That's incredibly early. Um, so for decades then, by by the teens, the 19 teens, it had been Chinatown had been central to San Francisco identity, um, both with for San Franciscans and then also for other people thinking about San Francisco. Um, it was always, it, you know, a highly segregated, um, very visible neighborhood. And it was central to the city's identity in a way that there's just no parallel for Japan or Japanese Americans. Um, you know, there's the tea garden, the Japanese tea garden. You can visit it today to this day. Um, but there's really no sort of locus for Japanese and Japanese Americans or Japanese migrants, I guess, um, in early San Francisco. Um, you know, no guidebooks. I looked through a dozens of guidebooks um, from, I guess, up through the, the pre-World War II era, and none of them mention anything about, um, I guess one or two do, but right, every single guidebook leads with Chinatown. Often that's the photograph on the cover of, of the guidebook for San Francisco. Um, but there's no, you know, there's almost no mention of, say, the Japanese district in the same way. It just wasn't a tourist attraction. It wasn't um, a kind of visible spot on the San Francisco landscape in the same way for a number of reasons. I mean, obviously, it wasn't as tightly segregated. Chinatown was the most segregated by far part of the city, really 
probably the most one of the most segregated places in the country. I mean, Charlotte Brooks makes this this argument herself um, in the country through World War II, and um, so it's historic Chinatown, and there's no analog for Japanese or Japanese Americans. The Japantown neighborhood, or it was called at the time, the Japanese district, Jap Town. Um, the Japanese neighborhood. I saw once a uh, little Osaka, which I guess, um, and I wasn't really sure how the Osaka part came to be rather than say little Tokyo, but nonetheless, it's almost, it's very rarely indicated. It's not really known as this place that you have to go or really that even if you wanted to go, that there'd be any place to go, right? It's mostly a place where migrants live, shop, sometimes work. Um, and so I think that's kind of the main part for Japan or Japanese Americans, there's no visible representation in the San Francisco environment. Um, most of that is focused on Chinese Americans or China. Um, and so this is kind of the starting point, I think. And what makes what happens in the post-war period, right, in that early Cold War period, so distinctive, that they're just that, that was very much a development of this early Cold War period, just because there was nothing similar to that um, in the pre-war, pre-World War II period. Well, to the extent that there, there was, I, I suppose, and this is where maybe the geographic um, the, the geography of the city mm-hmm. uh, comes into play is, you know, you, you talk about the neighborhood of the Western Edition, which if, if there ever was, right, that, that that was kind of, that was sort of the neighborhood, but it was still mixed because there was, especially during World War II, you write about the influx of African-Americans into the Western Edition mm-hmm. neighborhood, um, which had previously been sort of the, the serving as the Japanese enclave and, and, and that in this kind of troubled story of, of um, interracial collaboration, but also conflict, that the real villains in the story, it seems, are um, white absentee landlords who kind of exploit both groups um, as uh, um, in, in, in sort of the uh, housing issues and, and, um, and, and ownership issues um, that surface in the, in the pre-war period. Um, but, but the Western edition really becomes kind of the, the ground zero for and the setting for later on. Um, other kinds of redevelopment, um, the fights that happen. Um, so you, you brought us into the, the sort of immediate post-war era, the sort of early Cold War. I wonder if we can start then talking about, um, and you've mentioned this earlier already, but the sister city um, affiliation with Osaka, that San Francisco mm-hmm. uh, um, champions uh, in, in the mid-1950s, uh, late 1950s. Um, how does that come about and how does that uh, start to kind of expand the city's identity as the quote unquote gateway to the Pacific. Yeah. So, um, I just started to see when I, so when I was doing this, you know, initial research, I was looking through municipal archives and, um, local organizations. Um, in addition to, of course, sort of Japanese American community archives and, and resources. And it was quickly apparent that, business leaders, business, you know, organizations as well. And then a little bit later, municipal leadership really began to take this interest. It started definitely with business leadership, particularly a small cadre. Um, I mean, not not small, but a a cadre of um, mostly white uh, business men, and they were almost predominantly men, um, actually, I didn't see any women um, in, in those archives, but um, as uh, in positions of um, 
authority or uh, sort of visible leadership. But at any rate, um, I saw these this cadre of people, they're business people, all with ties to Asia in some ways, right? And so, of course, at the end of um, World War II, you know, in the late 1940s, early 1950s, they're kind of struggling in a very different kind of environment in which um, all of those ties, all of those, you know, economic networks, um, trading connections, economic relationships that had been developed over the course of decades for a lot of these companies um, were just kind of up in the air, I guess, right? Because World War II had so, and the Japanese-Chinese War had so dramatically, the Sino-Japanese War had just so dramatically changed conditions in East Asia, um, destabilizing all of those networks and um, trading relationships and so forth. Um, and so this this cadre of, of business people are thinking about ways that they can rehabilitate some of them or at least think about new ways that they can um, you know, revitalize what was largely a kind of, um, you know, mordant um, set of, of networks. So they hit upon, it seems to me, the sister city relationship or the sister city uh, affiliation. And the sister city, they kind of, they're at this nice juncture where you know, they're struggling to think about how can I develop these new relationships um, with the one kind of viable economy now. And actually, by the mid-1950s, it's not only viable, it's actually quite thriving. Japan is thriving by this point, um, is embarking an enormous economic recovery and growth that is um, explosive and really kind of unprecedented up until this point. And so they're looking at Japan and thinking this is this is a good country to connect with, right? And it's it's a long-standing trading partner. It was San Francisco's um, second largest trading partner in the pre-war years, um, really even up through the 1930s as tensions start to um, grow between the United States and Japan. Um, so a long-term trading partner. Um, and they're looking for these ways to connect, right, with this this new place, obviously economically, but also in ways that can help stabilize and shore up these economic connections. And at the same time that these civic leaders are kind of thinking through these, these problems, um, the instrument or the sort of tool of sister city affiliations um, kind of arrives on the scene, right? So this is the early Cold War period. There's all sorts of people-to-people networks, programs developing at this time, um, with a lot of the impetus coming from the federal government or sort of private branches affiliated with, say, the State Department or the USIS Information Service, um, or sometimes even consulates. Um, And so the sister city affiliation is, you know, it continues on to this day. A lot of cities have them, and they're largely symbolic things. But at the time, these were brand new, and uh, participants are kind of thinking about what this program, too, could mean. And, you know, what is the extent of this program? What can they shape it to be? Because now, of course, it's cities exchange gifts. Maybe there'll be sort of token delegations going back and forth. But at the time, right, it was 
what this what this program could be, what it could mean, how its extent could be felt was all still in very much in development. I mean, some cities were turning down sister city affiliations because they thought it would be too politically risky, right? They didn't want to have a single out one particular. So the mayor of New Orleans says, oh, we're not going to single out one city for any particular relationship affiliation because we don't want to harm our relationships with all these other cities, with all the other cities that we see ourselves connected with, right? So there was real kind of political import or portent, I think, um, understood to be a part of the sister city affiliation. So this cadre of business people sort of hit upon the sister city affiliation with Osaka, this again, Japan's second largest city and its industrial center. Um, and also kind of the, the other end of San Francisco trading routes with, with Japan um, as a way to kind of shore up thicken, I guess, economic connections, right, with sort of more personal, more cultural, uh, more sentimental um, networks. So the sister city um, really develops affiliation between San Francisco and Osaka really develops out of these kind of economic concerns, but economic concerns um, couched in cultural, um, cultural relations, I guess, and also sort of political, individual grassroots kind of business concerns. And it becomes a way then, um, once the business community begins it, it becomes a way for that small cadre of business people to sort of start bringing in more and more San Franciscans into this um, San Francisco, Japan, San Francisco, Osaka uh, relationship, right, to kind of add that cultural layer, to add that sort of grassroots popular layer to, um, again, sort of naturalize, institutionalize um, legitimize these U.S. or sorry, San Franciscan, Osakan, San Franciscan, Japan uh, relationships and networks. So, right, the mayor has to now be a part of some of these um, ceremonies. Um, he has to greet new delegations. Um, and this begins as a largely ceremonial role that he kind of blows off. He's kind of a jerk about it in some cases, um, but, you know, begins to realize within, you know, a year or two that, in fact, this could have useful um, implications. It could have use for San Francisco municipal life. It could have use for its business or economic community. Um, so municipal governments or municipal officials are brought in, right, as, represent as representatives of San Francisco. And then also, of course, the San Francisco populace through things like um, sailor visits or Japanese ship visits, for example. And that was something I was kind of interested in, too, because I remember, so my my family is all from Hawaii, um, and I remember them saying that, you know, as kids, they would go out and greet these Japanese ships, Navy ships, or I guess at the time it'd be the self-defense force ships coming in who would dock in Hawaii, and then, you know, the Japanese community would come out and have picnics for them or show them around town. Um, and they San Franciscan Japanese Americans did this as well through the pre-war period into the post-war period, and it had largely been a Japanese community event. But the San Francisco sister city affiliation with Osaka brought those kinds of networks and took them into kind of the mainstream civic life of the city because it no longer was just hosting these sailors. We're no longer just the sort of um, um, responsibility or you know, part of the Japanese community, but instead became something that the entire city could take, a, take part in, right? So there's one event in which the Japanese self-defense self 
um, Navy ship comes ashore and opens it up to San Franciscans. And right, this is like just a little over 10 years after World War II, but um, the reports of it are, you know, San Francisco's are wildly enthusiastic. Thousands of them go and tour the ship, climbing all over the ship, right, going and taking tours um, in the underbelly of the boat, going aboard on the uh, deck of the ship, right, meeting sailors, being taken on tours, um, by all accounts having sort of this grand old time and um, doing so in ways, right, that sort of shows, demonstrates to the sailors and then also to Japanese more broadly, San Franciscans' enthusiasm, enthusiasm for um, Japanese, Japanese people, Japanese institutions, um, and kind of the, the, the newfound popularity of Japanese things, I guess, and people in San Franciscan life. So the sister city then is a way in which I saw it as a way in which the interests of what had been initially a fairly small group of people, right, became an interest, became a really a civic identity for the city, one that involved the municipal government, city institutions, city civic groups, and then the wider populace, um, both Japanese, American, white, black, and so forth. I think one of the, the um, major takeaways I had from this too, and this is related to um, sort of your, your contribution to the literature on U.S.-Japanese relations in the post-war period, you know, where with the work of folks like Naoko Shibasawa, we've sort of seen, you know, the, the kind of um, revitalization of those relations from the point of view of emphasizing sort of women and children and tutelage and dependency, right? That the, the the sister city program here that you're painting for us talks about how those relations were also propped up on this footing or this idea of Japan as uh, having a, a respect for equitable, equitable relationship with the United States. Um, and, and that's a very different kind of um, cultural valence um, than, than some of the other work we've seen, right, about post-war U.S.-Japanese relations. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Um, this brings us, I think, nicely to... to um, and I want to talk about um, the, the next three chapters kind of together, because I think in thinking about how then, um, you know, we, we come into the moment of the 50s and the 60s with the construction of the Japanese Cultural and Trade Center, which is the um, the, the center that's on the cover of, of the book. We see the kind of architecture that you discuss in chapter five. You know, it, it strikes me that if, if we pick out individual figures from each of these chapters, so in chapter three, when we're thinking about merchant, Japanese-American merchant planners, people like Victor S. Abe. Um, in chapter four, we have Masayuki Tokioka, who we've talked about as the kind of banker and developer behind the Japanese Cultural and Trade Center. And then in chapter five, we have somebody like Minoru Yamasaki, who's the lead architect um, of the Japanese Cultural and Trade Center, that each of those from each of those individuals from, you know, each of those chapters kind of present a different facet of how the cult Japanese Cultural and Trade Center comes together, what it represents, uh, and, and the different resources and skills and backgrounds and cultural competencies that each of those groups comes with and may be hampered by. So I wondered if we could maybe talk about the history of the Japanese Cultural and Trade Center through chapters three, four, and five, 
um, and, and, and sort of think about some of the different stakeholders um, that are involved um, and, and how this project comes together. Yeah, so um, the Japan, the Japanese, I guess, that's, what is it? It's now called like the Japan Center or something. But at the time it was, when it first opened, it was the Japanese Cultural and Trade Center, then became the Japanese Trade Center. But um, in a lot of ways, that is that is very much the spine of this book. So if I'm thinking about this trans-Pacific urbanism that can describe San Francisco in, you know, the 1950s, 1960s into the early 1970s um, as this host of institutions, um, personal connections, trade networks, and so forth that um, are central to San Franciscan life and, of course, changes in the built environment, um, the Japan Project, the Japan Center, is in a lot of ways kind of the, the, the institutionalization, the sort of, I don't know, monumentalization, I guess, of that broader trans-Pacific um, urbanity or urbanism that I described earlier. So the Japantown Project then, this Japanese center, is uh, the heart of the book and is um, kind of the prime example, I guess, of San Francisco's trans-Pacific urbanism at the time. So I think as, as you nicely put it, kind of the, the numerous stakeholders was one of the things that really drew me um, to the project. It was one of the things that just, I, I, that really grabbed my kind of attention and um, sympathies, I think, in a lot of ways as, as I was writing this book, um, because there were so many different stakeholders, um, which I think also helped me understand kind of the, the, the different modes or facets, I guess, of this trans-Pacific urbanism. So the first stakeholders that I kind of understood were these Japanese merchants, these Japantown merchants. And I, I keep calling it Japantown because that's kind of commonly how it's called today. Um, but at the time, it would have been called, um, say, Japan, Japanese town or Nihonjimachi. Um, they mean the same things, more or less. And uh, by the, the people who lived in it, you know, a reference to the people who were living there. Um, so, or I guess, yeah, to the Japanese American population within. And again, if to other San Franciscans, perhaps those less generous in their language, they might call it Jap Town, the Japanese district, and so forth. Um, so the Japanese town merchants, I think, um, merchants, property owners, they were kind of the first group that I started writing about, actually, um, because in a lot of ways it was kind of the closest to, um, you know, the sort of community history that I had done in the past, I guess, or thought about in the past. Um, and they also just are kind of, I thought, in a lot of ways, very sympathetic figures. So what they're doing, so this is a group, I guess I should start with the redevelopment story, right? So um, in part because of the changes that you had described in chapter one, at the very end of chapter one, which is the, the wartime changes to the Japanese town um, neighborhood which was, um, of course, emptied during World War II as its inhabitants were taken to interned, incarcerated in um, incarceration camps. Um, the neighborhood had been largely filled by African-Americans, right? So this is a segregated neighborhood, um, one of the few that Black residents can live in. And so, you know, and it's empty. So all the, there's, and there's tons of migrants coming in from all over the country, but notable among them are tens of thousands of black Southerners coming to San Francisco for work in the war industry, right? For shipbuilding and other industries in San Francisco or in the Bay. 
Um, and they find in Japanese town a place where they can settle. Also one that's adjacent to the Fillmore District, the Black Fillmore District, which was small, but the heart of Black life in San Francisco in the pre-war period. Um, it's also drastically overcrowded. There's all these absentee landlords who don't really have much of an interest in taking care of the properties, right? Because they know they have... Um, a captive population, right, that can't live anywhere else, regardless of what the housing um, looks like. Um, and so because of all these transformations, um, overcrowding, um, lack of maintenance, segregated populations, um, poor populations, uh, the neighborhood quickly becomes um, fairly run down, right? And that is how the residents themselves often described it. And it became the target then for the first redevelopment program in San Francisco right after the war. Like cities across the country, San Francisco quickly embraces um, the redevelopment initiatives that came out of D.C., but also came out of sort of the academy and urban planning departments across the country or nascent urban planning departments, I guess, as they sort of uh, developed in, um, I guess, the New Deal and then post-war era. Um, okay, so Western Edition, the district in which Japanese town is located, um, becomes targeted for the first, city planners target it for the first redevelopment program in the city. Um, and so that puts, right, these residents, particularly, you know, all residents kind of on guard, right, because the neighborhood in which they're living in, the only neighborhood that they can live in in the center of the city is targeted for demolition. And these residents quite rightly note Right, where are they going? They're they're not going to have an option in this redeveloped neighborhood. It's going to be out of their economic means. It's also most likely, given the precedent of the past, going to be um, racially segregated as well. Um, so there's a lot of protest among residents, um, black, white, Chinese, Filipino, and then Japanese American. It's a very multi, as you note, as you noted earlier, it's a very multiracial um, neighborhood, even though it's sort of racially described as either black or Japanese for the most part. Um, okay, so the earliest sort of inklings, I guess, of this Japanese center project then comes out of these merchant, comes out of a, a group of Japanese American merchants, property owners pre-war residents and so forth who come together could just kind of worried about their their neighborhood right what's going to happen and the vernacular press notes this neighborhood is um on the chopping block um who knows what's going to happen to the japantown neighborhood right it's just quick it's just in the middle of an early um reestablishment, right, as residents return from incarceration or from resettlement communities elsewhere across the country. Um, and so really in the early 1950s, and it's in this very delicate position, and the first plans for redevelopment were um, noted in 1947, and it was in the early 1950s that real concrete plans became, were suggested and proposed and sort of published and made public. All right, so these merchants then come across these plans. They're reported in the press, both vernacular and mainstream dailies, and everybody's really worried about it. And so this group gets together and thinks, and of course they're predominantly property owners and merchants, which represents only a small fraction of the much larger population of Japanese Americans living in this area. And they're trying to keep a hold on their neighborhood, right? They're worried for their businesses, um, of course, because it, their businesses, their groceries, their dentistry offices, um, their accounting firms, um, 
their stationery shops. All of these are very much rooted in a Japanese American clientele and community. And without that, without that sort of residential community, ethnic enclave, ethnic ghetto, um, you know, there's there's a question of if if it can survive, if these businesses can survive. Um, and of course, what would happen to their property were it to be seized by eminent domain. So um, this group of merchants come together, I call them the Japanese American merchant planners, come together um, to think of a way to save their, pro- their, save their, their neighborhood. And of course, there was a lot of opposition, just an outright, if redevelopment is going to happen, um, it should include resident participation, and it should include um, input from from residents. So again, a lot of these residents had no illusions about about the Western edition. They knew it was run down. Um, a lot of opponents even approved of the idea of redevelopment because they thought the government, you know, this was an enormous problem. They thought that the municipal government should take some kind of role in making these neighborhoods more livable, but they thought it should be made more livable for the residents themselves, those who already live there, and not for potential residents who would come in from outside of this neighborhood, right, per- perhaps non-segregated white residents coming in probably with higher incomes because the redevelopment pro- redeveloped property would have to be sold at a higher rate. Um, and so exclude, therefore, the residents who are already living there. So there was lots of opposition, not necessarily to redevelopment itself, but to the way that the plans are developing in the city. Um, the mer- these merchant planners were not so much a part of that opposition, although, of course, as I note in the book, they did oppose it, but in very particular terms. But publicly, as a group, they come together to cooperate instead. So they think, all right, we can't end this program. It became quickly apparent that redevelopment was not going to stop. Um, instead, they think, okay, the next best thing might be to carve out a place for ourselves, for our businesses, um, perhaps to some extent, um, our residences in this neighborhood. So they propose a mall. And they call it the Japanese Village Center, the Japanese Garden Center. They propose a small little mall um, of just about a block or so that would allow them offices for professionals, that would allow them shops for store owners, um, offices for business, for uh, small businesses and so forth, Um, and also attractions for tourists. Um, So something that would bring in a wide clientele, something that would allow them to keep their businesses afloat, consolidate them so that the ethnic clientele patronage would continue, but also perhaps attract new tourists, new white tourists, um, who hadn't traditionally been, um, who hadn't traditionally gone to Japantown in the same way that they did to say Chinatown. Um, so when the Japanese center's origins then comes out of this kind of, I don't know, ethnic preservation, I guess, attempt, um, which is clearly very much rooted in this, these ethnic businesses and this ethnic economy, but then um, in the hands of city officials becomes something very different. So it's meant as this kind of, in its early iteration, you know, these merchant planners propose a small mall, largely with ethnic businesses, largely the ones that they had already had in the past, right, and that they just want to continue, um, again, as a way to kind of preserve the ethnic economy to the extent that they can. Um, and I just found that group... Um, and they continue throughout the book. They're kind of a continuous presence because they just keep trying and trying and trying, um, even as their first proposal sort of gets shot down in flames. But they just keep trying and trying and trying to, to, to maintain some kind of toehold in, in this neighborhood. Um, so in a lot of ways, that's, that's the origins then of this Japanese center.
and the first, I guess, group of stakeholders in, in the Japanese center. So then that brings us to maybe the folks who do end up winning out, whose plans do end up winning out over this kind of slightly smaller scale, uh, more locally grounded Japanese village. We get the, the, the backers of the larger, more expensive, more complicated Japanese cultural and trade center. Um, and that also then, which then takes us into some of the ways in which Japanese Americans contribute to uh, uh, the building and development of that center, including especially the, the architect um, of, of, this, of this mall. Um, I wanted to spend just a couple of minutes um, talking about Minoru Yamasaki um, and, and specifically your attention to the design aspect um, of the center, which I thought was fascinating, kind of incorporating a little bit of architectural um, history. Um, it just so happens uh, that my neighbor, who unfortunately is moving away to teach um, at the University of Cincinnati, um, wrote his dissertation on Yamasaki. So I was really excited to, to, to read more about his work in San Francisco on the Japanese Cultural and Trade Center. Um, how do you, how do you, can you talk a little bit about the, the way in which the design of the center and the architectural features um, sort of factor into this history? What are some of the contestations around Japanese design um, what elements are prized, and how does Yamasaki uh, sort of think about himself as somebody who's actually, I think, um, born in Seattle, right? Um, so, so not not native Japanese, right? How does he respond to sort of these demands or these requests for you know, sort of Japanese architecture? Uh, that the developers put upon him. So this is kind of one of the fun parts of the book for me, I think, because, I mean, I'm just interested, um, you know, I have a kind of layman's interest, I guess, in architecture and design. Um, you know, we all like pretty things. So, and I, it just, it gave me a chance to kind of think about what um, the design of the place might mean um, or might have signified, right, for the different people involved. So, um, once it became, so from the merchants, I should just quickly preface, um, from the merchants idea of this kind of ethnic continuity, right, which was entirely the opposite for what urban planners had in mind, right? For them, that ethnic enclave had very much been a part of kind of the blight that they saw as encompassing the district. Um, so, you know, their idea of ethnic preservation wasn't resonant with urban planners initially. But then because of all this interest in Japan, right, because of, say, the development of things like the sister city or other Japanese institutions in the city, um, more people do, in fact, the city dailies, and then eventually municipal officials become interested in this project. But they take it in very different ways, right? They see it as a, an opportunity to bring in a whole new class of businesses. They're not worried about these ethnic businesses. They're worried about bringing in Japanese businesses, Japanese capital and investment and goods um, into the city as a way to kind of epitomize, right, the San Francisco's place as this gateway to the Pacific. So for them, then, for these urban planners, for these um, city officials, people like M. Justin Herman, he's the head of the redevelopment agency, the way this, the, the project looks is, in fact, very important, right? It has to look a particular way to evoke that gateway to this Pacific identity, that trans-Pacific urbanism um, that the center is supposed to represent, right? So it can't just look like... You can't just slap on, say, the pagodas and colorful roofs of, say, Chinatown, um, right? Which was also a very right, or the or the Japanese tea garden that you talked yeah, about earlier, exactly. part of the PPIE. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
because it has to evoke modern Japan, right? It has to say something. It has to um, reach out to contemporary Japan. So you can't, you know, there's who wants to be the economic partner of, um, you know, the nation that produces these exquisite, delicate tea gardens, um, it, rather than say like the industrial powerhouse, right? That is modern Japan of the 1950s. So it has to evoke kind of this modern identity for the nation. It also has to evoke a certain amount of modernism, which is kind of the guiding design or aesthetic, I think, of redevelopment, both in San Francisco and all over the country. I mean, that kind of mid-century modernist design um, is at the heart, I think, of what um, redevelopment is, redevelopment's intentions, right? Because the whole idea is that by reconfiguring people's environments you can reconfigure people's lives right by make remaking environments you can make individual lives better healthier um, more productive and then also of course revitalize cities as a whole too um so it had to be modern but it also of course had to still evoke some notion of japan make recognizable um, gestures towards japan so that the passerby on the street could both see that kind of modern aesthetic but also of course see the japan that's that's meant to be represented here so the architecture is really important um, to urban to the urban planners to the city officials and then also to the architects so nori yamasaki yeah super interesting so he was the architect for the the project um he was actually the second architect hired but nonetheless he was the one who won out for reasons that will become clear so he he's kind of famous in his own right he built um of course the the world trade center towers um that are no longer in new york city um he had won awards by this point for a number of buildings particularly in the st louis area um he also was the architect of the Pruitt Ego housing projects in St. Louis, which were notorious um, for a number of reasons. But so he had by this time, this is 1960 when he was hired, he had by this time been kind of, he was, you know, he's an, he's an up and coming young architect, already won some awards, quite well known. Um, and he has already by this point developed a particular kind of aesthetic that has, that is itself merging kind of Japanese and what he would consider sort of Western modern forms together. Um, and this is largely because, well, the context, of course, for this is a huge interest in Japanese architecture, all sorts of Japanese things. Uh, Megan Warner Mettler's new book, How to Get to Japan by Subway, sort of talks about the Japanese boom, the Japanese craze of the, the 1950s um, in all sorts of things. But our architecture is one notable example of that. So Japanese architectural design is, is very much kind of in vogue for a lot of arch working architects of the, of the time, even though it might not necessarily be evident in what they're producing. Um, and so there's just a lot of work being done on Japanese architecture. It's popular. Architects themselves are thinking and talking about it. Um, and so it's already there kind of in the air. And for Minori Yamasaki, then it becomes kind of part of a personal, I don't know, philosophy of architecture, largely through his introduction to it um, in designing the Kobe consulate in, um, in Japan. So the State Department is building a whole bunch of new embassies all around the world, right? This is part of the Cold Wars. It's establishing its footprint all over the world. Um, and one of the things that the, our, the State Department does is hire kind of ethnics to create the, architect, the architecture of the consulates in particular countries. 
So Minoru Yamasaki is is one of the architects who designs a, a, a consulate in in Japan. Um, and part of the program of this new embassy building is that they have to be both modern, right, to demonstrate to the native population Americans dynamism and modernism, um, and also incorporate local forms or sort of vernacular architecture in some way too. So it doesn't look too out of place, right? And wherever it's set, wherever these consulates are built and also thereby to demonstrate, right, the, the sort of ability, the capacity of American democracy to be universal, to um, embrace ideas and forms from all over the world. Um, all right, so Yamasaki then is hired to build this Kobe consulate. And so in doing, he has to sort of teach himself all about the local architecture, right, if he's going to in, 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 integrate this stuff into his building. Um, and he calls it, uh, what did he call He called it like this this um, education and Japanese architecture. He sort of plunged himself into it um, and really got absorbed into Japanese architecture in a way, again, that wasn't too unlike a lot of architects of the time, but he saw as kind of particularly personal given the fact that he is Japanese um, himself. And so he learns all about Japanese architecture. He builds this building that is um, as he calls, as he sees it, as this kind of the hybrid, right? There's um, shoji-esque like um, framing around the outside of the building. There's landscaping. There's windows that allow the outside to come into the inside, and so forth. So, in various ways, he's trying to incorporate sort of Japanese um, ideas with American, um, I don't know, engineering and materials like concrete. So the Japanese is always kind of this kind of, decor not decorative, but it's some of it is functional, but it's very much kind of built onto this foundation of, of American materials and engineering, the kind of building block of, of the building. Um, so he already has this, right? So that was in the late 1950s. He already has these ideas developed in his head um, by the time he comes to this particular project. So he's really kind of this perfect candidate um, for the kind of project, the kind of building that uh, urban planners and the developer really want to see. So, um, and for him too, he, he himself kind of, in some of the interviews that he gives says that, well, yes, being Japanese American, I feel like I'm the perfect candidate to bring these Japanese forms and ideas and philosophies, design aesthetics into um, Western conversations. But at the same time, right, this is, um, it was very much an education for him, right? He, this wasn't in any way natural to him, right? He had been educated at the university, I think at the University of Washington. Um, and then I think in New York City, I'm just, I'm forgetting these details off the top of my head. But so he very much had a standard um, American architectural education, he had to educate himself purposefully, really sort of read and explore and um, develop um, an understanding over time, right? It was by no means natural to him. This was very much a self-conscious um, development for, for Yamasaki. Japanese architecture and design was a self-conscious education for him. Um, and so he was able, right, to bring some of those ideas to the Japanese Center Project. And for the urban planners, they saw his facility, or at least his you know, the sort of understanding of his facility with Japanese architecture as something kind of natural. Like, of course, urban, you know, the officials 
kind of crow, like, of course, we have this Japanese American architect to do this kind of work, because um, it reflects, right, the, the Japanese um, culture behind this Japanese, this Japanese center project. Um, and so the, the planners ask him to, you know, make sure you have these Japanese details right and make sure that there's some design stuff that looks Japanese. Um, and for him, that is in some ways kind of insulting to the, the hard work that he had to put into gaining that knowledge, right? And so he gets kind of snippish at points, right? Responding to their letters and their requests with, well, you know, I'm, this is, I'm not an expert in this kind of thing. I don't really know um, exactly what Japanese ornamentation would look like. You have to talk to a Japanese architect for that. Because, right, it's reflecting these kind of very racialized ideas about Japanese Americans, that there is this natural um, this natural knowledge, this natural familiarity of Japanese culture, of Japanese ideas, of Japanese forms inherent in Japanese Americans, right, that you're just not going to find in, say, a white American. Um, so just as he is as he as an architect is bringing these two sets of architectural or what are understood to be two quite distinct sets of architectural ideas together into this one building. Um, he is also reflecting as a Japanese American kind of racial thinking about Japanese Americans, right? That Japanese Americans are kind of intermediaries, are interpreters of Japanese culture or can be interpreters of Japanese culture for Americans because they have this natural facility with Japanese culture. Um, and so are ideally primed, right, to um, bring these two, you know, distinct, or as they're understood at the time, two distinct cultures together into one. Um, he feels this, or, he, you know, this impacts um, his performance in the work. It also impacts uh, Nobuo no, Nobu Nakamura, the other Japanese-American architect involved in this project, um, because the assumption always is, right, these are Japanese-American architects. They're just, they're, there's just this kind of inherent familiarity with Japanese culture, um, at least presumed by the white urban planners or white city officials at the time. And of course, this is really distinct, right? As Ichiro Azuma or um, Yuji Ichioka has have um, noted, this is very distinct to white Americans, right? Japanese, say, people in Japan, Japanese nationals have no such idea that Japanese, you know, Japanese Americans are in any way inherently Japanese, right? So Nobuo Nakamura, the other architect, he's the architect of record, for this project, he is taken by one of the Japanese companies, um, investor companies to Japan, right, to, to study, to, to learn all about the particular kinds of architectural um, forms that they need for their particular building, right, because these Japanese nationals have no sense that there's any kind of inherent familiarity, any inherent fluency um, with Japanese culture. Um, among these Japanese Americans. So through the architecture, through the form of the building, you can kind of see, I mean, the kind of roles that Japanese Americans are playing, right, as intermediaries between Japanese and American interests, and also the kind of racial thinking, I think, that describes their, uh, that describes Japanese Americans at the time as intermediaries um, with Japan. And again, sort of- Yeah, I think the- Sorry, I was just going to say, I think that the I wanted to draw out the point, which I think is really important um, for listeners to, to to understand the way that you sort of set this up as um, kind of a, hard, you know, a rock in a hard place where obviously during the Cold War, right, this position of being uh, a, a sort of interpreter or a bridge between Japan and the United States is in many cases professionally and economically advantageous 
But as you say, it, it comes at the cost of kind of reinscribing their foreignness. And, and oftentimes, you know, we don't quite um, get both sides of, of this coin um, uh, or see it as clearly um, these trade-offs that people have to navigate. But I think Yamazaki's life and his career really helps to, to illuminate that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think what I what I'm going to do uh, in the interest of, of, of time is, you know, I'll, I'll summarize quickly, you know, chapter six. And, and unfortunately, we won't be able to do full justice to it because I think that also is a really exciting chapter. Um, it will be for, for folks who have read, you know, books like like Robert Self's um, um, history of, of um, urban organizing um, in Oakland, sort of the, the, the history you tell in chapter six of the uh, contests around the redevelopment uh, or the second redevelopment project in the Western edition um, and, and all of the different groups that come together, some in favor of uh, direct action and protests and some uh, in terms of legal uh, action and, and negotiation, um, that when we look at both African-American and Japanese-American uh, sort of responses to uh, additional redevelopment of the Western edition, that you actually, you see um, uh, groups on both sides um, who are using these different kinds of tactics um, and, and you sort of give a very rich history of some of these community organizations, um, which I en- encourage listeners to really look into. But I want to sort of um, end uh, on our discussion of the book um, actually by asking about what happens in the 1980s. And I was, I was kind of curious as we sort of move into um, moved into sort of the, the later part of the 20th century sitting in uh, Michigan as I am, uh, you know, there's, when we talk about Asian American history in the 1980s, sort of the, the murder of Vincent Chin mm-hmm. um, is kind of the big, you know, sort of landmark event that everybody knows yeah. about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm curious what happens to the Japanese Cultural and Trade Center at a moment when Japan takes on a much more sinister uh, connotation in, in American life and politics, right? Um, you know, it, it represents kind of renewal uh, and modernization uh, during the early part of the Cold War. What happens in the 1980s? Um, to Japantown, to the to uh, to the Japanese center, um, when Japan doesn't look quite so promising or quite so friendly anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a great question because um, the whole idea is building this representation of Japan, also San Franciscan relations with Japan into the. Um, into the uh, built environment of the city. Um, and of course that works, right, when relations are good, but then it it doesn't work when, when relations uh, turn hostile again. And of course that's also true for this racial thinking about Asian Americans too, or Japanese Americans, but also Asian Americans more broadly, as other scholars have shown, right? Um, so, okay, I should preface this. I don't know that much about the 1980s in, in San Francisco or, you know, around this this thing i stopped my study in like uh, 1970s um and i'm kind of more familiar with the 90s and the aughts but from my understanding it kind of goes um it's 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 and this is true actually almost immediately after it opens it the Japanese center isn't super successful. Like it doesn't actually do that well. It doesn't attract that many people, even in its earliest iterations, largely because it takes so long to open. And by 1968, when it does open, um, Japan is already kind of, I mean, Japanese products, right. Um, are already pretty familiar there that you don't need a set away place to go see a Honda or a Sony transistor radio, right. Kind of everybody has one by this point. A lot of these these brands, these products are very familiar to people, even as early as the late 1960s. Um, 
uh, my friend Drew McEvitt has a great book on consuming Japan, which which looks at kind of the 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 per, the I don't know um, germaneness of Japanese products in American life by the 1980s. Um, so by the you know through the 1970s, the 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 project really struggles. The Japanese center really struggles, and in by the 1980s. Um, the center itself isn't so much of an attraction that it would, um, you know, demand or invite, I guess, um, criticism because it is already the, the center itself is already kind of a marginal place. And I also do think that to some degree, that this this transpacific urbanism that had been developing and sort of solidifying through the 1950s and 60s to some degree insulates San Francisco from some of the more venomous anti-Japanese animus that develops in other parts of the country, right, by the 1970s and by the 80s, right, certainly in um, the Rust Belt, in Detroit in particular, right, where... Um, um, or in Michigan, where uh, Vincent Chin is killed, uh, you don't have quite the same um, animus, hostility toward Japan in San Fran- places like San Francisco um, that you would in, in other parts of the country, particularly the more industrial parts that might see themselves as competitors in some ways with the products that, that Japan is exporting into the United States. So to some degree, I think this trans-Pacific urbanism, and I mean, I think it remains to this day and in, in aspects of San Francisco life does kind of insulate Japan from some of the worst anti-Japanese animus, right, that might have otherwise made the Japanese center a center for attacks or protests or boycotts or something like that, just because the city sees itself as so integrally um, sort of Pacific oriented as having these strong Japanese connections. Um, you actually saw this in 1962, where there was enormous protests in Japan against American, um, well, it was against the constitution that came out in Japan, but very much a tar- uh, the United States was very much a target um, for those protests, in which millions of Japanese came out into the streets protesting against this treaty, this constitution, um, and American relations with Japan more broadly, and sparked kind of anti-Japanese um, headlines, um, protests, venom in the United States at the same time. This was in 1960. It was very brief. Um, it was relatively brief, at least, but it was marked. Um, and you would you had sort of nasty headlines in other parts of the country, but you really didn't see that in in San Francisco, largely because there were again these institutions of connections with Japan that helped to kind of insulate San Francisco from the most extreme, I guess, anti Japanese sentiment. So in some ways, while the Japanese center itself wasn't a target and to any sort of large extent um, during the anti Japanese, um, I don't know trend of the 1980s or 1990s, um, the connections, I think, that it helped, that it sort of embodied in some ways, also that it helped to foster in the city, um, really helped to make San Francisco um, in some ways, I don't know, kind of vaccinated, I guess, against some of the more extreme versions of um, anti-Japanese xenophobia in the period. Yeah, I think that's a nice way of of also underscoring your point 
that you you make in the conclusion, which I think sometimes historians, we love scales, right? We love talking about scales, international and regional and hemispheric and state and county and, and local. And I think the the point you make in the conclusion, which I really loved, is that, you know, whether it's we're talking about sister cities to these um, trade relationships to sanctuaries today, that cities are, for many of us um, in the United States, kind of the most international of scales. Um, they're, they're, you write about how it's where the rubber meets the road uh, in terms of international, you know, social, cultural, economic issues. Uh, and that's a really wonderful illustration. Um so Meredith, I want to, before we end, um, as we always do uh, on New Books Interviews, I wanted to ask uh, about your, your current project. I know you're working on Japanese-American incarceration, which comes up a little bit um, in the early part of, of this book. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're currently working on? Yeah, so my my next book is on um, resettlement, um, Japanese alienage and resettlement from incarceration camps in World War II. And it kind of actually has some of its roots, at least in... In this book project, too, for my chapter one, I had to, um, I wrote, you know, it was a kind of prehistory of of the main story that I tell, but I had to sort of talk about the transformation of Japantown over the course of the 20th century. And of course, that included incarceration and then that brief resettlement period, the years after incarceration. And as I was kind of writing that section, um, I realized just how, or I, it was made sort of doubly clear to me um, how small the literature on resettlement is, um, particularly when we think about the, the, the central place that Japanese incarceration, Japanese American incarceration in World War II, um, the central place that that subject has in Asian American literature is probably one of the most storied the most uh, studied parts of Asian American studies more broadly in history or in Asian American studies more broadly. Um, yet that period of resettlement is um, sometimes seen in kind of concluding chapters of work on incarceration. Um, there's certainly a, a, a small cohort of historians who have lo- who've written articles about the subject. Um, Greg Robinson has a book on post-war Japanese America, but for the most part, there really isn't any focused monograph looking at the resettlement period. And to me, that seemed, um, it seems like a, it seems like uh, something that we can understand a lot from this period, right? So incarceration raises a whole lot of questions about belonging, um, about citizenship, and about alienage, I think, that um, could be profitably kind of explored through the resettlement period. Um, so, and it also just came up too, because as I was researching this project, I was trying to understand the exact kind of nuts and bolts mechanism mechanics of how Japanese Americans are coming back to their neighborhood, finding people already living in their homes, but still resettling, right? Still reforming a community. And so just that kind of the mechanics I was interested in. But then um, I also, um, I guess, came to understand it as a problem really of alienage in a lot of ways, because again, the literature on incarceration focuses heavily on citizenship as a problem for any number of really important reasons, right? And it has told us a lot about Japanese-American belonging, about um, the racialization of Japanese-Americans as well as Asian-Americans more broadly. Um, But at the same time, if we kind of flip the story a little bit and think about it in terms of alienage, um, I think it can can shed kind of new light that we haven't looked at previously. So for example, 
Japanese Americans are the last group to gain naturalization um, in the World War II or post-war years, right? Most Asian Americans have it by 1946, the access to naturalization, right? And that was an important part of Asian American pre-war racialization, that Asian Americans were forever foreigners, and that was inscribed in laws that prevented both their migration, but also their naturalization into American citizens. And for Japanese Americans, that right doesn't come until 1952. So we have this period um, which also overlaps with resettlement, right, in which Japanese migrants can't naturalize, in which the entire population really was kind of alienized, right, by being set apart and then by being incarcerated. Um, and so on the one hand, right, you have a whole population that really is alienized. And then you also have a whole system, a whole network of institutions, public and private, from the federal to local levels, that are really set up to help assimilate this entire population into communities across the country. Um, right? Social service agencies, municipal offices, um, the Social Security Board, all of which um, create within themselves new kind of institutions, new staff to, to purposefully integrate, assimilate, adjust these Japanese Americans as they leave camps into communities again across across the country, Chicago, Cleveland, New York, um, and then after 1945, San Francisco or LA or Seattle. And so that kind of um, juxtaposition of on the one hand alienage, and then on the other hand, um, a really quite robust social citizenship, right, of, of entitlements and responsibilities um, of these resettlers was just really kind of intriguing to me. And so that's kind of what my, pro my next project is thinking about, that kind of relationship between alienage um, and all the different ways in which um, these Japanese-American resettlers are moving into communities across the country in the right. post-incarceration period. Yeah, and that that certainly has resonances, you know, today with with questions of resettlement and and sort of obligation. Right. Um, I mean, obviously, so we, we look forward to. Yeah, yeah. So we so we'll look forward to hearing, hopefully, maybe in the future from you about about that book. But in the meantime, I want to sort of thank you for for the time, um, and obviously for your hard work in putting this book together. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation, um, and and it touched on so many different areas, uh, uh, not only uh, for folks who are interested uh, in Asian American studies and Asian American history, but um, also for for folks who are working on U.S. and the world uh, and urban history. I think we'll find Gateway in the Pacific. A really fascinating read. So thank you, Meredith. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Ian. I really appreciated this conversation. It was fun. That was my conversation with Meredith Oda, author of The Gateway to the Pacific, Japanese Americans and the Remaking of San Francisco, published in 2019 by the University of Chicago Press. My name is Ian Shin, and this is New Books in Asian American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.